As you're listening to this episode, let us know if you have any questions for our guest. If so, please send us a message to team at onehaas.org or join our discussion board using our Clever podcast app. You can download the app at clever.fm. I'm Adam Ward, and this is Here at Haas, a student-run podcast connecting you to all Haasies and the faculty that change our lives. This week on Here at Haas, we are joined by Alex Holden, EWMBA Class of 2023, Business Development and Partner Executive in the Sport and Entertainment Industry, and a VP for Admissions in the EWMBA Student Association. Welcome to the show, Alex. Thanks so much for having me on, Adam. Awesome. I'm excited to speak to you today, Alex. Particularly, I saw on your LinkedIn, you had talked about your passion being the intersection of entertainment, media, and technology. I know a little bit about media, more about technology. I like entertainment, but I know nothing about sports, which I know is a lot of your background. (laughs) Well, then we have a lot to talk about today, Adam. (laughs) (laughs) We have a lot to talk about. Alex has promised that he's going to go into more depth and I may not even be able to ask questions for because I'm sure a lot of people listening will be interested to hear about your story coming from sports and entertainment and how that's taking you to MBA. So I'm super excited. And maybe if you could just kick off, Alex, just telling us a little bit about yourself and your journey to Haas. Sure. So my journey to Haas was, I don't know if it was traditional, but I basically pinpoint my career as the pinpoint of the start to my journey to Haas. And I was the weird 17-year-old who oddly knew what I wanted to do when I grew up. I knew I wanted to be in sports in some way and somehow. And I went to undergrad to University of Massachusetts Amherst, go Miniman to study (laughs) sport management. And I also doubled in journalism. And really that put me on a path to get in my career, started in New York, go to a startup, which I consider kind of my first real job and my only real job. And then eventually ended up at the Giants a couple of years later, really to pursue my passions in the industry. Now, my background is in business development and partnerships. For my career in the Giants, for my career at that startup, it was always about driving revenue, either through bringing in new corporate partners or Mm -hmm. continuing and creating growing relationships with existing long-term strategic partners, whether it's in tech or silver sports. Ultimately, for me, what happened was on the master's side is my dad's an attorney. I always knew that I was going to get a master's of some type. And perhaps the most intelligent decision I made when I was 21 years old, perhaps the most intelligent decision any 21-year-old has ever made was I was studying for the LSAT. Basically, I realized I hated this and I decided that I need to enter the workforce to really see what kind of path that I get on and what I really gravitate towards, especially as it pertains to my master's degree, whatever that may be. So a few years into my career, it was pretty quick. MBA, this is what I want to do, especially on the revenue generation side. And that made sense for me. And for me, it was just a conversation and really an internal reflection about where I am professionally, where I am personally, and where am I in relation to being able to go back to class. And for me, I'm a naturally curious person. I was the guy at the Giants, always reading Wall Street Journal, going to my director, hey, look at this, we have to do that. But really what happened was, you know, I was in my career at the Giants for years at this point, but I really decided I have an amazing girl that I was dating at that time. Now she's my fiance. But I said this was the time. I felt good both mentally, emotionally, professionally, personally, that this was the time to go back and get my degree. That really gets to actually answering your question, Adam. So as it pertains to business schools and where I am in life, number one, the evening weekend part-time programs just made so much sense for me. I mean, I didn't 
A, want to give up my income for a couple of years, but two, and importantly, the nice thing about this program is yeah, we're kind of in the same age, kind of the same area of life, either recently married, aged. I'm 32 years old, so folks are kind of around. I'm not married or engaged, excuse me, Alex. <laughs> one day. Yeah, hey, one day, but same walk of life, right? <laughs> and that's personally, professionally too, everyone has a lot of really good work experience. So I just feel very part of the group, not like I'm the young guy or the old guy or the whatever, right? Even though I like to joke how old of a guy I am frequently. <laughs> Anyways, that kind of got me to the evening weekend piece. But what was really important about Haas really had to do with culture and it had to do with proximity to me as well as kind of my family. So as far as culturally, I had this stereotype of business school as basically being like, I don't want to say like an older guy fraternity, but a very kind of like high end, almost not stuck up, but we're wearing suit and ties and we're all kind of competitive with each other. And is it really relationships you're building or is it like business contacts you're mm-hmm. building? And that was my like preconceived notion that that's not me at all. <laughs> I mean, Adam, you know me, anyone who, who ever met me, I mean, that's just so not what I was looking for, especially just at this point in my life. I didn't have any time for that. Mm-hmm. So eventually I was lucky enough to get into a handful of amazing programs, but what ultimately set Haas aside was I call this culture kind of the least business schooly culture <laughs> out there. And what I mean by that, and what really I mean, aside from the joke, it's that, first of all, everyone's extremely friendly. I mean, I I just find that there is not one person I've come across that isn't just like nice. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how many experiences I had in life where that's been true. Two, I find that there's such a great diversity of thought. For me, all these MBA programs were sharing and talking up how much diversity they had and this and that. And really, like, I kind of look at this stuff and say, all right, let's see really what it's like. And I was really so happily surprised that Haas really kind of put their money where their mouth Mm -hmm. is. I am surrounded by not just people from different backgrounds and different countries and different experiences, but really folks that will look at the same problem completely different ways. In class, we have 70 different opinions to solve the same problem. And to me, that is so exciting. I feel like it's unique to Haas. Number three, and importantly with the program, half my family went to Cal. (laughs) (laughs) I've been going to a Cal football game since I was a little blob, including my dad. So I thought it was such a cool opportunity now that I'm back in San Francisco Mm -hmm. to get my Cal Haas degree. And I I can tell you, my dad was very happy with (laughs) that. They're both a little surprised that I got in, but I'm surprised too. But he was happy that I got in and that I'm uh, enjoying the program so much at this point, about a year, year and a half in. That's awesome, Alex. Lots to unpack there about sports, entertainment, the work with the Giants. Also, an interesting thing you said about knowing when it's the right time to do an MBA. Lots of people ask me that. So lots to unpack. I'm looking forward to this conversation. But would love to take it to the beginning of your answer where you said how much you love sports. I'd love to unpack that. Like, what was it about sports that got Alex this kid and Alex the adult just like so enthused? What do you love about it? So if I were to find sports in one word, I would use the word family. Mm -hmm. And so oddly with my family, there was only one other person that was actually a sports fan. That was my grandfather. Mm -hmm. My grandfather was the influence on me. He's (laughs) the one that gave me the taste and oh, it was good. He was a huge Niners and Giants fan. So that means when I was six, seven years old for Christmas, they gave me my Steve Young jersey, which I still have, right? And really kind of that passion for sports from him turned me into a fan. Growing up, my friends were all kind of athletics, 
I was actually extremely unathletic. I could never catch, but that's besides the point. I was kind of involved in this culture where I watched, I, I partaked, I enjoyed, and I just had this very positive look at what sports were. Mm -hmm. Now, when I was a teenager, what that developed into was a deep fascination into the industry, mm -hmm. right? That started off with when I was 12, reading about free agency. Oh, how does that work? Like, how are players signed? How are players traded? Like, what's a CBA? It's a collective bargaining mm -hmm. agreement. It, I'll get into that in a second. <laughs> but really for me, I became so fascinated by it. And sure enough, when I was in high school, I got the opportunity to write a paper for my US AP history course. And the paper was about pop culture in the 1960s. And if you know anything about American football, the first Super Bowl took place in 1967. So I somehow convinced my teacher at the time to basically let me do a report on the rise of football oh, cool. and its relation to pop culture in this country. And that basically opened a Pandora's box for me. That showed me that there's a whole academia side of the industry. Mm -hmm. It gave me the idea that I can actually make a career in that space. I wasn't entirely sure what I would do at that point, but I was pretty sure like, oh, this is a possible outcome. And transitioned to, and I couldn't define it in those times, right? But over the years going through college, as I reflect, what I realized, what I really like about sports are the values. Mm -hmm. You know, unfortunately, media will really kind of point out and harp on some really negative stories. Mm -hmm. I can tell you working in sports, being around professionals, that's just such a small percentage of what's going on. Right. Sports about family, sports about bringing people together, lifting people up. In this day and age, I mean, what other things can bring two communities with absolutely nothing together, just wearing the same colors mm -hmm. for, you know, one particular day, right? I think that's really, really special. So as I thought about, sure, I'm a huge fan. I love football. I love baseball. I love all that stuff. But as I thought about a career and something that I can really have a lot of value alignment mm -hmm. with, but something that I really believe in, right? And I think that's something that so many of us in life look for. Like, what can we really believe in? That just resonated so well with me. And again, just starting with watching uh, 49ers games with my grandfather back in the day. That's awesome. I love that. And I think it's interesting you talked about family. I'm currently reading Think Again by Adam Grant. And that has a whole section on the Red Sox and the Yankees and their perceptions of each other and how you try and take out some of that stigma they hold. It's like super fascinating. So I definitely recommend that book. We don't like Dodgers fans much either. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I've learned all of this. Like, oh my goodness, I'm getting into it. And out of interest, what did you find in your research project between the link of the rise of football and pop culture? Yeah, so the interesting thing is football is kind of new as America's game. Remember, it was baseball. In this country, it was baseball. You know, baseball was basically started being played around the 1840s as every man's game that folks would do to kind of during the industrial revolution in this country. It was like a men's club where they would drink and they would bet and they would have a good old time. And then they eventually started having uh, teams that went around to different cities and eventually they started selling tickets. And before you knew it, by the turn into the 1900s, that started actually turning into an industry. Mm -hmm. Now, the interesting thing about football is football was played in the uh, late 1800s, mm -hmm. but it really rose in popularity closer to World War One. Mm -hmm. And when you think about the game itself, the lines, right, the offensive line, defensive line pushing against each other. Unfortunately, it was very similar to, to trench warfare. Mm. But the interesting thing about the game itself is that a lot of the ideals are kind of American ideals, right? Mm -hmm. It's the team first. Mm -hmm. It's the we can do this together if we work harder, if we get stronger, if we get faster, mm -hmm. we can have competitive advantages if we 
are more strategic than the other team. We can mm. have these competitive advantages. So really, you're looking at the early 1900s when the sport grew at the collegiate ranks. Now, mm. there were professional leagues, but essentially in the mid-1900s, that's really when it started impacting pop culture, mainly due to the rise of television. TV started being in everyone's homes in the 1950s about, and there was a championship game in 1959, the Johnny Unitas Colts, they were the upstart team. You know, Johnny Unitas was just a kid then. First, the veteran New York Giants. And the amazing thing about that game was it was a nationally televised game. It was one of the first nationally televised football games. And it was a great game. It was in the snow and it was a close game. And what happened was in the final play, and it was a touchdown, but what happened in the final play is the TV went out and people didn't know what happened. Everything exploded with excitement. What happened? And sure enough, that led a couple years later to the NFL making one of its, I believe, its smartest strategic decision, mm -hmm. which was to collectively bargain amongst all the NFL teams. The longest standing primetime TV show, Monday Night Football, was about to be born in 1961, mm. where they would basically invent what the primetime at-home sport viewership game was. And due to the rise of television, due to the access football is a made-for-TV sport in so many ways, it just grew more and more interest. By 1967, there were two competing football leagues, National Football League and American Football League, and they combined to form the Super Bowl. Mm. And that just grew and grew in popularity. And then you look at American sentiments, fast pace, the hits. But it goes back to those American ideals. It's the team. It's the we're all in this together. The stronger, the better. United football, you have 11 guys on each side, mm -hmm. all working as one. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the really beautiful things about the game in itself. You have 11 individuals literally working together as one team to an inch, to a split second, right? Anyways, that's kind of what I saw. It really just takes those American ideals and it grew in popularity due to the rise of the new technology at the time, television. Incredible. I know this is an audio-only podcast, but if it was visual, you'd see Alex's eyes light up so many times throughout the answer. I love how much passion you have for it. And it's so true. It's so interesting coming to the US and seeing sport done in such a different way. It's not cricket <laughs> like it is in the UK. And I remember going to watch a college game and like, someone jumped in from an airplane and like parachuted into the pitch before. I was like, this is a college game. Like what is happening? This is crazy. So it was interesting to see that. And to that point, and what you kind of inferred in your answer is like, it's big business, right? Sport is big business in the States. And you've worked in business development. And I'm sure a lot of people, and I'm interested in as well, it's like, what does that actually mean? What does it mean to do business development for the Giants or someone like that? Just to give you the background here, television contracts meant sports leagues make a lot more money. Mm -hmm. And when you make a lot more money, that means players make a lot more money because those are collectively bargain agreements, mm -hmm. right? That's how every player's is union. And because of that, these teams, which were once family-run small shops, turned into major multi-billion dollar value companies. Mm -hmm. Basically overnight, for baseball, that was in the 80s. For football, that was starting to happen in the 70s. We really started working like that in the 80s as well. And it started changing. So now we're at a point where sports are a multi-billion dollar industry mm -hmm. in this country. I mean, just live sports. If you would just want to talk about the four core sports itself, NFL, MLB, NBA, NHL, multi-billion dollars, then you have all the ancillary assets. And what's interesting and with my job, and I'll get that to you in a second, is just that there's so much interest right? Mm. And that's why these are big businesses. It's not having a niche Netflix show. It's not having a reality TV show that people watch once a week and they all want to talk about it the next day at work, mm -hmm. right? 
sports mm-hmm. are like on nonstop, especially the cultures I've been in, both in sports and out of sports. Did you see that game last night? Mm-hmm. Were you there? Oh my God, we, the playoffs are coming up. We have to go. There's a through line of culture in this country that just values it and for whatever reason is interested. I know a lot of non-sports fans too, but I also know those non-sports fans are happy to go to a game if they're invited. I'm leading into that. I'm just starting off there because what I did was I focused a lot on the hospitality side of the business, really working with a lot of our top corporate partners. But for sports teams now, there's really three lines of revenue generation when it comes to partnerships, right? So that means hospitality like that. It could be suites. It could be tickets. It could be much more unique experiences. It could be brand partnerships. So literally working with other companies to like bring in Oracle for the naming rights of the stadium and all kinds of other interesting ways of aligning brands to really kind of feed off each other, really help each other's business grow. And the third is kind of the more avant-garde area, which is using stadiums and all the properties around the stadiums on non-sports days. Mm. And what I mean by that is baseball has the most regular season games. So baseball has 83 regular season games guaranteed every year at home, Mm -hmm. right? Well, what happens to those other 200 plus days where the facility is not used? So most sophisticated franchises now have entire sales groups dedicated to using that facility, these multi-million, hundred million, billion dollar facilities in a way that impacts the community either for corporate races or for Ironmans or for holiday parties. You really can think of it, but just from the partnership standpoint, that's where it is. And then especially when you get to the actual television broadcast rights, oftentimes some of the branding partners will have to do with like getting TV ads or more and more leagues and teams are freaking out how to go a little more direct to consumers, a little more digital. Mm -hmm. So there's also kind of the ad tech involved. It's a really interesting space. And for the folks in tech thinking about this, it is growing because I believe that the interest is still there and still growing in a way. Now, it might take on different forms. It might not be, for example, Sport X. That's the coolest thing anymore. It might be video gaming. But even with that, I think that a lot of the practices and kind of the cultural interest in it will remain the same. And it's just a matter of how well can you adapt as you move forward just with general industry. And that's what I focused on. I focused on bringing in corporate partners and really thinking and listening to them and understanding what works, asking questions like, oh, if you've been with us for 10 years and this doesn't work anymore, hey, how can we continue to be partners mm-hmm. and how can we continue to help you? Or simply, you've never worked with us before. I have some great ideas. Mm-hmm. We've had a lot of success with companies like you. How can we really partner at least in year one and see how it works out for you guys? The Bay Area, if I told my bosses all the time, but I would only do that job in the Bay Area in New York because the Bay Area just has some of the most interesting companies And I got to meet with them. I got to sit down in their offices. I got to learn all about them. And I got to think super creatively Mm -hmm. about how they can use the Giants to help their businesses. And that was a lot of fun for many years. Yeah, that's super interesting. There's lots to unpack there. I have some questions. I want to move the conversation on to talk a little bit about COVID. But before I do that, I have this question that might be a little tactical, but I'm kind of intrigued to see. Do people in the workforce, would you pick one sport that you're like super interested in? Or do you find that people pivot between lots of different teams from different sports? Yeah, they do. It's the latter. I mean, if you want to have a career in professional sports, there's two things that you have to know. Number one, forget if you're a big fan of any team or any sport. You get a job, whatever, there's an available job, Mm -hmm. especially on the team side. These are the jobs everybody wants, right? These are the jobs where you can win a championship and really be part of it, right? 
So jobs are limited and these companies aren't growing too much. It's kind of like a law firm. Like you can't really <laughs> get a high role unless somebody leaves. Mm -hmm. So for that reason, you know, I mentor kids coming out of college frequently and say like, look, like get in where you can get in. If that's baseball, great. If that's NHL, great. If that's football, great. Just get in there. And then that's when you start pivoting. The second thing is you just have to be willing to move. For me, I was lucky enough where the Giants had an available role right around the time when I wanted to move home from New York at the time. So I got lucky there, but many of my colleagues were all over the place. And really with that, it is a small industry when it comes to actual headcount. Everyone knows everybody and I have my favorites. I wouldn't say I wouldn't work in any sports, but I definitely was more interested in working in certain ones compared to others. I'll say that. That's crucial information to know. I'm finding that this is like super interesting to me. I know nothing. I feel like I know it a little bit more. Sometimes you say acronyms and I have to like double check in my head that I know exactly what you mean, but I, I'm getting that. I'm getting that. But Alex, this is fascinating in terms of how the business usually runs. And then obviously there's this thing called COVID and a pandemic that happens. So how did you and the Giants pivot during that time, right? Because so much depends on people coming in and watching these sports. So I'm going to not take credit for this one. One of my good buddies, the Giants, he was one of the heads of marketing. We couldn't get fans in the stadium. The 2020 baseball season was supposed to start end of March 2020, and it didn't start until end of July 2020. Mm. And during that time, it wasn't like, oh, of course, we're going to start end of July. It's not going to be a big problem, as we all know, right? It was just questions after questions. And once you answered one question, there's usually three more that come up, right? And so how do you deal with that? Number one, eventually when games started, and this is what my buddy did, they got cardboard cutouts of our fans and they put them in the stadium. <laughs> Weird, I know, but <laughs> the Giants got thousands of cardboard cutouts of fans. They put up in the stadium in seats. The players literally say every time they came home for a homestand, that means they came back to play games at the home field. There was like a thousand more cutouts. And I even thought like, hey, is this really going to work? It did because it was a way that fans were engaging with the team in a way that they couldn't be there, but they kind of were. Mm -hmm. And they could sometimes see themselves on TV, which is also fun, right? And they got to pick up their cardboard cutout after the season. It was the totally kind of kooky San Francisco thing, right? But it worked. When it came to really what my role was and what my responsibilities were was, I was managing a multi-million dollar worth group of business mm -hmm. about customers, of clients, long-term clients that were entrusted in me to make sure that they're well taken care of. And one of my value alignments with the Giants, it's always about the long-term mm -hmm. relationship with the client. The Giants are not car salesmen. It is, you know, new partner of we just met or long-standing 10 to 20 years, which is at the time really what I was working with. Mm -hmm. How are we going to help you and how are we going to take care of you the best way we can? So for that, I had hundreds of clients that I was working with throughout the course of time. And different companies just had different corporate rules mm -hmm. and regulations. And for us, we adopted a rule of flexibility. We said, because we want to maintain and not the very worst hurt, but if anything, grow relationships, mm -hmm. we have to be great listeners to understanding what these companies meant. And we put together programs basically to say, hey, look, if you want to continue doing business with us this year, we're going to give you a handful of really nice incentives, mm -hmm. right? The incentives you would never imagine if we were like ordering a World Series, but that's time to call for it. And at the same time, if I worked with some national partners that basically had their national rule was we are 
cutting budget. We can't spend anything this year. And that's okay. And instead of saying, hey, you're out of the family, you're out of the group here, we basically find like, look, we value you. We've worked together forever. We're just going to say that this year is a push year and we're going to keep you in the family and we will reconnect when you can to get you back in 2021. Sure enough, it's 2021 and they lose very few games. So for all those folks that did that, it was a good idea. (laughs) Awesome. And out of interest, big question and feel free to take it how you want. Everyone talks about we're not going back to how things used to be. And I can see in my job, there's going to be more remote working. There's lots of different things. How do you think COVID and this experience of the ongoing pandemic will fundamentally change sports, entertainment, business models in the future? Yeah, so I'll answer this way. Most sports leagues generate most of their revenue through commercial television contracts, meaning that let's call the National Football League will make a deal with Disney to broadcast certain football games on ESPN. Mm -hmm. Those are multi-billion dollar contracts for the NFL and range in hundreds of millions of dollars annually for other leagues. What happened during the pandemic is that two things. Number one, you couldn't have events, right? Mm -hmm. So no longer can people actually go to experience the game in person. They were watching it on TV if they were. Mm -hmm. Combined with the fact that commercial television has been declining in actual subscriptions for years. Mm -hmm. And the pandemic actually escalated those numbers quite a bit because people were basically saying, hey, the only reason why I have commercial television subscription, so I have like Comcast or Xfinity or DirecTV or whatever, is because I want to watch sports and there are sports on. So why would I keep this? I just, I'm going to watch Netflix. I'm going to watch Disney Plus. I'm going to watch Avengers Endgame because that's (laughs) a great movie. So really the viewership was declining and because of that, the interest was declining. So what I saw in the industry so far is the NFL make a big move and now leagues are kind of following suit. So for example, the NFL, as I kind of shared, those games are made for TV events. Mm -hmm. And the challenge that's been happening is all these leagues are having a tougher and tougher time reaching younger audiences. And I'm getting to answer this question in a second here, but you'll see. So really like with the NFL, they made a huge deal. One of their key television partners is Viacom CBS. Viacom CBS obviously owns CBS, Mm -hmm. which is where you can find a lot of NFL games. They also own Nickelodeon. Mm. And for an NFL playoff game, and this is why it was so noteworthy to me, for an NFL playoff game, one of their biggest TV events of the entire year, they decided to do two broadcasts. One broadcast was normal, like what normal fans like me are used to mm-hmm. for that audience that are fans that are probably a little bit older than me in their demo. But they also did a secondary broadcast on Nickelodeon where they completely integrated the Nickelodeon experience oh, no into way. the game. Yeah, they had young announcers, They had a young Sheldon pop up (laughs) explaining rules. They had, what was it, the slime cam where (laughs) people got slimed. The coach got a slime bucket instead of Gatorade at the end. What the NFL did in partnership with Viacom CBS is say, we are going to reach new audiences through digital and Mm. television means. And now MLB is doing something similar with a certain baseball broadcast, having different broadcast crews do it. NBA, you can see it. The point of that strategy is saying that, look, our viewership is changing and our most lucrative revenue stream is changing. People are no longer purchasing those subscriptions to get it, right? Mm-hmm. Disney is extremely invested in ESPN Plus, which is their direct-to-consumer sports channel through ESPN. Over the past year, Disney has spent 
billions of dollars. That's billions with a B wow. on sport content, wow. right? And that's with the NFL, MLB, NHL. They're expanding their viewership. And in every one of those deals, it has a big piece about exclusivity. Mm. Well, most of the deals, I should say. A lot of it has exclusivity with the direct-to-consumer streaming rights. That's what's happening. And I think that's really what was going to happen probably in five years as is, five, 10 years as is. But the pandemic accelerated that. And especially when you're looking in just the general entertainment industry, I kind of alluded to it with dropping subscriptions, but the direct-to-consumer platforms, the Disney Pluses, the Netflixes, even HBO Max, those type of apps exploded during the pandemic Mm -hmm. with subscriptions, right? That's what people were interested in. And I think sports now are starting to innovate and starting to adapt Mm -hmm. to consumers who just are more interested in that type of content. And look, these are super established companies, right? You can look at any super established company and you can probably say like, wow, they've been really successful. So why do they really Mm -hmm. want to change quickly, Mm -hmm. right? And I had a conversation even with a video gaming company that was very established. And they even said like, look, like we're very successful in what we do. We can wait for other companies and other people to try certain things. And then if it works, we'll just acquire them. (laughs) And that's a similar strategy to these leaks that I think they're really adopting now where they're seeing what was successful and they say, great, like we're going to do that just how they do it. Mm -hmm. And I think that is the biggest change in the pandemic. And if anything, there's a boom in interest in going to events now just because like, well, hopefully, knock on wood, right? But if anything, the ticket business, hospitality business, the travel business has rebounded pretty well. I went to a handful of Giants games even this year. And once California opened up, you wouldn't know, right? You wouldn't know that anything happened. But it was beautiful. It was fans so happy to be there. But I think that the reliance on that is going to decrease a little bit. Now, that's just me talking. But anyways, I talked your ear off there, Adam. I hope that answered your question. I mean, it's a broad question and it was a thoughtful answer. So I appreciate it. I think you've got a very exciting future in front of you. So I will have to follow up for a remedial session on further (laughs) sports. So I'm excited and I must go and watch a game with you because I'm sure I will learn so much because I currently know nothing. So (laughs) that'd be great. Uh, Adam, you're in. I'm going to keep the seat warm next to me. We're going to have a good time, all right? (laughs) It's going to be great. I apologize in advance for the uh, things that I say. Alex, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Adam. This is great. And thank you to you for tuning in to Hear at Haas. Know a Haasie that has a story to tell? Nominate them on our website, haaspodcast.org. And if you enjoyed this week's episode, please subscribe and leave a rating and review. It really does help. And of course, share this episode with your favorite bears. Until next time, I'm Adam Ward, and this is Hear at Haas.